please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 through 10. If you're using the Pew Bible, the verses are on page 143 in the New Testament. Hear the word of the Lord. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I have been filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the humbled, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance, for you were made to have godly sorrow, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, to salvation. But the sorrow of the world brings about death. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, I do thank you for your word and that it is alive. And in, in that, it truly does bring help to us in instruction and guidance and challenge and encouragement. It does that on all mornings, and it, and it does that on this day's morning. So I pray by your grace that we would be helped by this portion of your word that we are examining together. And would you cause this time to be fruitful in us, in us and among us. You know our hearts. You know where each of us are in uh, our journey of sanctification and being conformed to the, to the image of your Son. You know what we each most need. And would you bring that to us? And you know any of the hearts that are here this morning who are not yet yours by faith. And, and even as we gather together, would you move upon those hearts to bring them to life, to bring them to truth, to bring them to hope in you that is life. And Father, would you overcome all obstacles to the ministry of your word this morning, um, certainly including the limitations of the one through whom it is being brought. In Jesus' name, amen. So, sorrow is our focus this morning, or rather, sorrows. Uh, and I believe, again, we will find some really important application to our lives from this passage, from considering these two sorrows. But before we do seek that application, we really should uh, have an understanding of the context uh, of what Paul is dealing with, uh, with the Corinthian church. And particularly, as he identifies a sorrow that they came to as being godly. So I think, I think first we need to be clear about the cause of the sorrow that this passage is dealing with for our understanding of, of what Paul is dealing with with the Corinthian church and then also for how we are to apply it to our own lives. And the context here is not sorrow in the way we most often might think of it. It is not sorrow brought about by disappointment or by loss, such as the disappointment of, an, of a situation that's really important to us that doesn't turn out the way we had hoped or, or perhaps losses we've experienced in significant relationships. 
Um, those are sorrows we know well, as Marcia and I were just talking about. <clears throat> no, the sorrow here is a different sort of sorrow. The, the sorrow Paul is talking about here is a sorrow that the Corinthians came to because of actual failing and sin on their part for which they were truly guilty. In writing this letter to his Corinthian brothers and sisters, Paul is responding after finally receiving news from Titus after he returned from a visit to Corinth about the Corinthians' response to an earlier letter of rebuke, um, particularly regarding the tolerance of grievous sexual sin in their body. This situation was confronted in chapters 4 and 5 of 1 Corinthians. And in uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and sexual immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become puffed up and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Paul is confronting the Corinthian church for failing to deal with and to discipline sin in their midst for the sake of guarding the body of Christ and for the sake of the soul of the one who had sinned that, as Paul says, his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Many commentators, however, do believe that there is actually another, even more severe and rebuking letter that Paul sent to the Corinthians after making a second visit that he refers to as a visit made in sorrow, apparently because of their continued disobedience in dealing with sin in the body. Paul shares in chapter 2, verse 4 of 2 Corinthians that he had early, earlier written in severity out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not with the intent of simply making them sorrowful, but as he says, that they would actually know the abundance of his love for them. Just a side note here, in light of that, is this not a good model for us as we think about our disciplining, whether it be in the church or within our families, that there would be a determination that love would be known in the discipline, and that pain and sorrow would certainly not be the ultimate goal or the end game, even though as we're familiar with, Hebrews 12.11, all discipline for the moment seems not joyful but sorrowful, but in the hands of love, as that verse continues, it, even painful discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness by those who are trained by it. Our efforts to discipline are to be lovingly aimed at restoration and reconciliation, which is, which is actually Paul's prayer at the end of this letter, that the Corinthians would be truly, fully restored. But back to Paul and the Corinthians. Paul, at this point, takes clear joy in reaffirming his love for the Corinthians saying to them in verse 3 of chapter 7 that he has not said these things to condemn, but repeating to them something he had apparently expressed before, saying that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together, and expressing in verse 4 the great pride he has in them. Paul then rejoices in verses 6 and 7, in the news that Titus brought of their reception of his visit, of, of their bringing Titus comfort 
that he was able to bring to Paul and the others as he shared with them the Corinthians' holy longing and zeal, or mourning, longing and mourning, as well as their zeal for Paul himself. It is in that context that Paul then speaks in verse 8 of having caused the Corinthians a sorrow by the things that he had written that he does not now regret Though he also admits in a way that seems very human that he had for a time regretted the sorrow that he knew that they would experience. Clearly, I think, because of the tenderness and compassion he had developed for these brothers and sisters. Side note number two, isn't this sort of ambivalence in some sense, also not a good example for us in our disciplining, again, in the church or within our families as parents, as our loving hearts are so rightly torn and naturally torn by the experience of causing pain and sorrow to those who we dearly love, even if we are convinced it is necessary for correction and for reconciliation. Not that, not that Paul is specifically prescribing such ambivalence here, but he's certainly not apologizing for it. And is it, is it not encouraging and kind of winsome in a way to hear in him the kind of heart he had developed for these brothers and sisters, even as he was bringing discipline to them. And may, may we also be so torn ourselves in times when there is sin to be addressed or correction to be brought. But again, back to Paul and the Corinthians. <clears throat> Though he had felt regret, Paul says that he is able to no longer feel regret because the sorrow that he did cause was temporary, as he said, only for a while. In fact, he says in verse 9 that he actually now rejoices in the sorrow they felt because of the response that it brought, that they were made sorrowful to repentance. Because because of the kind of sorrow that they felt, which he called a godly sorrow. Paul even goes on then in verse 11 to outline the good fruit that this godly sorrow produced in the lives of the Corinthians, specifically naming seven such fruits. And these are fruits that I think it would be profitable for us to to explore and to understand at least a bit this morning, though they certainly seem worthy of longer contemplation. First, he speaks of an earnestness. The Corinthians were moved to sincerity and to taking very seriously the guilt they had come to recognize. They were no longer indifferent to sin, either their own sin or the sin that they had so wrongly tolerated in the church. Their attitude was changed. This was strength of feeling. They were serious about dealing with this. Second, he speaks of the Corinthians seeking to vindicate themselves, or in other versions, to clear themselves. Now, this could give us what I believe would be a wrong impression, <clears throat> at least in the way we commonly use these terms. The Corinthians were certainly not seeking to justify or excuse themselves or to prove that they had been innocent. Otherwise, their repentance would have been a sham. And Paul clearly doesn't believe that because he's celebrating it. Their vindication here, I believe, is to be seen instead as they're taking resolute action to clear themselves of any further or continuing guilt in this matter. Their change in attitude towards the sin 
had led to decisive action. Third, he speaks of their indignation. And again, we need to understand this rightly as well, because I think we most often think of feelings of indignation as reactions to things to other people have said or done to which we have taken personal offense. Instead, I think it's clear that the Corinthians were indignant and were truly offended at sin itself. First their own sin, and then perhaps the sin of the other that they had tolerated. Fourth, Paul speaks of the Corinthians having fear. And we may not at first be inclined to think of fear as a fruit to be particularly glad about. But in the context in which Paul is rejoicing, this fear seems most certainly to be a a renewed, healthy fear of God and of the perils of sin. And those are good and protective fears that it is foolish and dangerous not to have. Fifth, he speaks of longing and zeal, which again, I think, reflect a profound change of heart in the Corinthians, a longing and a zeal to be fully restored and reconciled, to again be walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which they had been called. Sixth, Paul speaks of an avenging of wrong with other translations using justice here. And this reflects in this context, I believe, not their own vengeance, since Paul certainly would not have affirmed that. He did, after all, write Romans 12, 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. But here, rather, an active determination to make right what they could in regards to their former sinfulness and its effects. And finally, seventh, he speaks of them having in everything demonstrated themselves to be innocent in the matter. And once again, because Paul clearly sees their repentance as genuine and necessary, this can't be referring to an original innocence in the matter, but a restored and continuing innocence through their repentance and forgiveness and a change of heart and action. This is a sorrow that has clearly produced glorious and redemptive turning in the hearts and lives of the Corinthians. And if we go back one verse to verse 10, we see that these things are sort of the fleshing out, or perhaps better, the spiriting out, of what Paul says there about godly sorrow, that it produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. The products of godly sorrow resolve and settle things in a way that allows the one who has come to such a sorrow to move forward, restored, renewed, reconciled, unburdened and unbound by lasting regret. Is this not a glorious thing? Amen. But Paul goes just a bit further in verse 10, doesn't he? to make a contrast between this godly sorrow and another type of sorrow. Again, he says that godly sorrow produces repentance without regret leading to salvation. But he only says one brief and very pointed thing about what this other sorrow produces. Only one word is needed. He simply and quite ominously says that this other sorrow, if it is followed, which he calls of the world or worldly, brings about death. And and then he just keeps writing. 
Moving on to the fruits of the Corinthians' godly sorrow that we just went through in verse 11. But should we not pause a bit here? Or rather, should we not slam on the brakes here? Paul has just identified something that if it is, if it is embraced and pursued is not just somewhat effective, ineffective or sort of unfortunate or just not quite as good for us, but that results in death. It's deadly. It seems to me that this is worthy of a beware of this. Put warning labels all over this. Skull and crossbones, poison. Put a not just a child-proof cap, but an adult-proof cap on this. This is dangerous. In some sense, Paul is telling us that if you truly embrace this sorrow, if you ultimately devote yourself to this form of sorrow rather than the godly form, you will die. You will die. Can there be any greater reason to take something seriously and, and to be sure that we're understanding it? I think the answer is no. <clears throat> so how is it then that we should understand that this worldly sorrow somehow is able to bring about death? It doesn't seem that the scriptures give us a sense in which this worldly sorrow in itself directly or instantly kills the one who embraces it. We aren't told of situations where people express a, a sorrow that's clearly worldly and they drop dead on the spot. So how is it then that this worldly sorrow can bring about death, as Paul has clearly stated? As a help in understanding this, let's consider one example of someone who has been viewed as perhaps the spirit or a scriptural poster child for worldly sorrow. Your minds might easily go to who that might be. That person is Judas Iscariot. After his obviously great and grievous sins, which increased and culminated in his outright betrayal of Christ, he did clearly come to a deep and even despairing kind of sorrow. He expressed clear regret for his actions. And in Matthew 27, 3 and 4, he even came to return the money that he'd been paid back to the chief priests and elders. He called what he had, been, what he had done sin and proclaimed the innocence of the Christ he had betrayed. So far, so good. In some sense, it seemed he really did see the wrong in what he had done and truly regretted it. But what did his sorrow lead to? Do we see restoration? Do we see resolution and reconciliation? Do we see any of the fruits of godly sorrow that Paul has just outlined in the lives of the Corinthians? No, we certainly do not. The chief priests and elders offered him no remedy for what he had done in response to all his lamenting, but very coldly told him to just see to that himself. What Judas's sorrow did lead to, we see recounted in verse 5. He throws down the money they'd refused to take back, money he had evidently for a long time coveted and sinned to accumulate. And he went away and hanged himself. 
The sorrow of Judas did indeed end in his death. So I believe we need to ask ourselves, what was so very different about the sorrow of Judas that it ended in such a tragically different way? I think the essence of, what, of, what, of that difference is quite clear. I th it seems evident that though the regret of Judas was real and great, it did not lead to one absolutely crucial thing. It did not lead to genuine repentance. True repentance doesn't just wish for a way to undo what has been done because of having second thoughts or even hating the outcome or the consequences of what was done. True repentance is a humbling of ourselves before the ones we have sinned against. Often first God himself and then others. Acknowledging, taking full responsibility, seeking the forgiveness we so desperately need. From the record, we don't see Judas turning to God in true contrition or looking for some way to go to Jesus and his brothers and seek their forgiveness. Judas instead turned to himself and to his circumstance to despair, perhaps self-pity, and evidently saw no option for himself but death. In a way, he did just as the chief priests and elders had directed him. He saw to it himself, which may actually be a really good way to characterize the ways of worldly sorrow. But in a sense, it wasn't his worldly sorrow itself that directly brought about the demise of Judas, but the fact that his sorrow was worldly rather than the godly sorrow that God works through to redeem and to restore and to give and to preserve life. He chose a useless substitute for what he so desperately needed. I do want us to reflect together a bit further on this worldly sorrow and on our need to be very watchful for it in our own lives because each of us all too often has occasion for sorrow over our attitudes and over our actions, sometimes over outright sin. Even if we are in Christ, walking in the newness of life that he offers, we all know full well we are not finished striving with the flesh with the old man, with the sin that dwells within that Paul so poignantly recounts from his own life in Romans 7. And largely because of that, I believe, we also do often struggle to keep ourselves from a sorrow over sins and failings that is far more worldly than godly. And because of that, in addition to fighting this within myself, in my opportunities in the counseling office over many years now have led to more conversations about the contrast between these two sorrows than I could possibly count. I do think it is very important for us to recognize that for any of us who are believers, redeemed by Christ, we have known godly sorrow. Thanks be to God. In fact, the scriptures make it clear there is no way of coming to Christ savingly except 
through a godly sorrow over sin that leads to repentance. But what does it commonly look like when even we believers succumb to a sorrow that is really more worldly in nature? And how can we be vigilant over that tendency and that temptation? What I feel I so often see in us is a sorrow when we have failed or sinned that leads to a kind of folding in on ourselves, sometimes, at least inwardly, cursing and condemning ourselves. I can't believe I do these things. What a hopeless case I am. What's the use? Am I even a believer? And to a descent into discouragement and despair and defeat and resignation and a kind of self-absorbed shame. And despite some possible expressions of I'm sorry at the time, the focus in all of that is essentially and ultimately on one thing. It is on self. The focus becomes much less on real concern for those we've sinned against or the effects they've suffered from our wrongdoing than on what they probably now think of me or what I stand to lose in terms of their good opinion of me or their respect for me or their affection for me or their desire to be close with me. This, more than anything, is self-pity. I may be filled with regret, but it's more out of self-concern for the consequences I'm facing and what I stand to lose. And these thoughts also generally produce little or no actual motivation to take real action, to make things right, to seek the good of the other, but instead, we tend to withdraw into ourselves and to make matters even worse, while we are bemoaning our failing, our failing of other people even, even the very persons we've wronged can actually end up feeling compelled to try to encourage us <laughs> and to make us feel better. We can become what Tozer called the groveling self, which he saw as actually being no less self-absorbed than the swaggering self, so full of conceit. So that sorrow holds no benefit, really, for the ones we've wronged, but can actually place an added burden on them. So does this sound familiar? Can you recall times of seeing others express such sorrow to others or to you? Or far more importantly, do you recall times of giving yourself to such sorrow, giving yourself to a sorrow like this? I could just say that this seems to be really quite common. But if I may be so bold, hopefully lovingly bold, in the manner of Paul, don't tell me this doesn't apply to you. Don't. <laughs> there would be naturally some sins or some types of sin that we could look at where some of us could could rightly say with some relief, oh good, at least that's not one of mine. But this one, this one is just so fundamental to the self-serving flesh that is there in each one of us. So, in light of that, I expect all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, 
are all too familiar with the temptation of this type of sorrowing. In fact, <clears throat> it seems to me that this worldly sorrow could just as legitimately be called fleshly sorrow. And again, there, are, there is not one of us who does not have the flesh still to deal with. So, brothers and sisters, I believe we must see the worldliness and the fleshliness of this type of sorrowing in ourselves and renounce it. Because it is fleshly and it is of the world. And the unredeemed world and the flesh are by nature on a relentless death march and will only produce death fruits of discord, self-preoccupation, separation, isolation, discouragement, despair, nothing like the repentance without regret that Paul is talking about. And so in watching for, sometimes catching this in ourselves, we must, and I believe by God's grace can, repent of that of choosing and embracing a worldly sorrow that is so contrary to what God calls us to. And then in godly sorrow, we can turn to God and to others in repentance over guilt that we rightly bear, having our hearts turned and changing the course of our actions, seeking forgiveness, seeking reconciliation, ways of making things right, correcting our injustices. I believe there's actually another word for this godly sorrow. I believe that word is conviction. Spirit-led conviction, which again, according to Romans 2.4, is actually a kindness of God, even if painful at the time, that is meant to lead to this life-giving, life-preserving repentance. And I think of how Paul, back in 1 Corinthians 4.14, spoke of having written to the Corinthians not to shame them, but to admonish them as a spiritual father to his beloved children, to help them come to needed conviction. This was for their good and their benefit. This was a kindness of Paul. I believe we can think of this godly sorrow as actually and simply gospel sorrow, sorrow that looks away from self and repentantly runs to the saving grace and power of Christ's redemptive work, sorrow he has ordained as his instrument to restore us and to liberate, liberate us from the futile ways of this world, the, the fatal ways of this world and its sorrow. Last year, the elders went through a men's devotional by the Puritan Thomas Watson called The Godly Man's Picture. And we took turns sharing reflections from that with the men of the church. In one section, Watson had some helpful thoughts on these very things. He talked about how a truly godly man weeps because the sins he commits are in some sense worse than the sins of other men, by which he means unbelieving men. And this is because they are sins in the full knowledge and face of Christ's sacrifice and therefore bring even more dishonor upon God. He then goes on to speak of the resulting sorrow in a godly man 
saying that it is not a despairing sorrow as he does not mourn without hope. He says that divine sorrow is actually excellent and that there is as much difference between these two kinds of sorrow as between the water of a spring, which is clear and sweet, and the water of a sea, which is salt and brackish. And we certainly know we, we want nothing brackish going on within us. <clears throat> he then describes three distinctives of a godly man's sorrow. First, he says that it is inward and calls it a sorrow of the soul. And I think this really aligns with the earnestness that Paul was seeing in the lives of the Corinthians. Well, he points out <clears throat> that hypocrites may disfigure their faces to make sure others are impressed with their suffering, as with the fasting Pharisees in Matthew 6.16. He says that godly sorrow goes deep within. It is a pricking at the heart. Second, he calls godly sorrow ingenuous, as in the opposite of disingenuous or insincere. He says it is more concerned for the evil in the sin than the evil that follows after or the consequences to the self. And finally, he says that godly sorrow is influential upon the heart. It leads to change. He quotes Ecclesiastes 7.3, By the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better, and says that divine tears not only wet but wash, they purge out the love of sin. <clears throat> For an illustration of godly sorrow, to contrast with Judas, we can look to an example excuse me, that was happening at the same time. And many of you may anticipate this example as well. The Apostle Peter was also guilty of a betrayal of Christ in his three denials of Christ, even saying that he did not know the man. Peter, too, after that, was overcome with regret and with anguish. And Matthew and Luke both speak of him going out and weeping bitterly. None of the accounts provide specifics about what immediately followed after that. But we do see evidence that Peter clearly did not withdraw into prolonged or self-absorbed despair as according to John's gospel, on resurrection morning, he is right there to be the first to run with John to the empty tomb. And a friend actually pointed out to me last week that in Mark's account, the angel told the women who discovered that the tomb was empty to go and to tell the news to Jesus' disciples and Peter, almost as if to say, make especially sure Peter knows. And then sometime later, we are also told in John's gospel of Jesus appearing to the disciples on the, sh on the seashore when they were out in the boat fishing. When he realized it was Jesus on the shore, Peter could not wait the time it would take to pull in the nets and row to shore, but threw himself into the sea and swam to shore to get to Jesus as quickly as he possibly could. And then we're told of Peter's restorative interaction with Jesus on the seashore, where three times he's invited to reaffirm his love for Jesus seeming to match his three sinful denials. And we hear of his being entrusted with the commission to tend to and to feed Jesus' flock. And he's even told, according to John, the manner in which he will one day 
be martyred for his faithfulness to Christ. And Jesus then renews his call for Peter to follow him. Though we are not given a specific account of Peter's confession and repentance for his sin in denying Jesus or of his seeking of forgiveness, the results and the outcome can only mean that these things did occur because clearly Peter is forgiven and reconciled to Christ. And there is no other way in which that could be accomplished. Peter clearly had humbled himself and come to the Father and to Jesus in repentance, seeking reconciliation, and had not rather seen to it himself as Judas had. So in a real sense, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, there were two men who betrayed him. But from that point, these two men took two very different paths of sorrow that led in very different directions. So, what should we take from this profound contrast that Paul is communicating between <clears throat> these two types of sorrow? <clears throat> I think that, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the picture we should have is <clears throat> that in a sense, <clears throat> after we have done wrong, at least unless our consciences are truly seared and silenced, God forbid, a fork appears in the road before us between these two paths of sorrow. And we will move forward on one or the other. There are no other options. On the path of a godly sorrow that convicts, <clears throat> that brings repentance, that resolves regret, that leads to reconciliation and change, or on the path of a worldly sorrow that instead wallows and is more consumed with self-preoccupation and self-concern than true concern for those we've sinned against and the effects of those sins. <clears throat> in the course of life and in our, again, all too, <clears throat> excuse me, all too many opportunities to deal with occasions of failing and sin, I believe we must be alert to our fleshly inclination toward a worldly and self-centered sorrowing. Because, or partly because, that not only fails to bring resolution, it actually compounds the sin. And we must strive at those times to be people who are instead humbly responsive to the Spirit's conviction over our sins, over our wrongdoings, and turn in humble and true repentance to the Lord and to others, concerned not for ourselves, but for them. That is a fruit in keeping with repentance, as John the Baptist put it. That is the pattern that ought to mark our lives as believers. In humble gratitude for having already been forgiven a debt that we could not have paid by grace alone. And that is the pattern we must fight hard to maintain because we know in this life we have in our flesh something that dwells within, that pulls strongly and directly against this godly sorrow in every possible way. That is the path that Jesus calls us to, and that is the path on which he is to be found. And ultimately... Beyond just dealing with specific failings and instances of sin, 
we must persist as a way of life in our eternal hope in the fruits of godly sorrow for the salvation from sin that is to be had in no other way. To hope in what some have called a Judas repentance would only lead us to where it led Judas, to death and to separation from God. But rather it truly is the kindness of God, really the ultimate kindness of God to move us by his spirit to real conviction, to true repentance, and to the blessings of forgiveness and of reconciliation and all of the other fruits that follow that will never, ever leave us in regret. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we know so well that if you had left us to ourselves, there is not one of us who would ever have come to true repentance, the repentance through which you save. Would you help us all with humble hearts to choose and to embrace even day by day this path that you have set for us, And may it bear in our lives the fruit that it bore in the lives of the Corinthians and in the life of our dear brother Peter. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ who opened the way of hope for all who repent and believe on him. Amen. For a, I think, somewhat fitting benediction, We'll go to Psalm 32. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. May we go forth as a repentant and repenting people, trusting not in ourselves but the Lord and reaping the gladness and the joy to be had. You are dismissed.